0: Bob's Red Mill believes in baking, breakfast, and the pursuit of good food for all. Learn more at bobsredmill.com slash podcast.
1: You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org.
2: All right, folks. Yes. (laughs) Yes, it is time for What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I am your host, Katie Kiefer, and this is the Heritage Radio Network. We are broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn, Uh, in the back of Roberta's restaurant, one of my favorite places to eat in New York. Um, So we're going to start with joys and sorrows. Every once in a while, I pull one of these together. And um, here's a few factoids that caught my attention over the last week or two. Um, The first one is the following. The EPA entered into an agreement in 2005, 2005, folks, that's 12 years ago, with the meat industry to develop the means to test the air quality around concentrated area feeding operations. Uh, It cannot come as much of a surprise to most of you listeners, that basically nothing was accomplished in that time frame. So what this means is that there are no reliable emissions estimation methods to determine whether animal feeding operations comply with Clean Air Act and other statutes. And Food and Water Watch long ago pointed out that we don't really have a clear picture of just how many animal feeding operations are actually in business. Um, They just aren't really fully accounted for. The big ones, yes. The smaller ones, not so much. So uh, there you go. So much for the naysayers who claim that these businesses are in compliance and are not contributing materially to greenhouse gases because there is no way of measuring it. And if you're somebody who lives in an area that is close to one of these um, big farms, or let's say you live down in North Carolina, um, Hog Capital, or up in Iowa, another Hog Capital, believe me, you know that they are not in compliance with clean air statutes. I mean, because the uh, constant irritation to your lungs and eyes, uh, the chronic respiratory diseases, and the various other aspects, uh, including depression, anxiety, headaches, uh, intestinal problems, are all attributed to the hydrous sulfide gases, uh, the methane, the ammonia, and the other um, noxious um, products of concentrated area feeding operations. Um, So that's that little moment there. Um, That's something that you could lobby a senator for or a congressman, like let's get this show on the road, get the EPA to do its job, of course now. Not so easy, but maybe your local Department of Environmental Management could be persuaded. Definitely something to pay attention to. Um, and then I noticed recently on September 28th, The Guardian reported that the European Parliament has banned Monsanto from entering the European Parliament after a, the multinational corporation refused to attend a parliamentary hearing into allegations of regulatory influ, interference. So, kind of like the way the Russians interfered in our election. Uh, you know, Monsanto is kind of doing the same thing. Uh, Monsanto spends about half a million dollars a year lobbying EU members to look favorably on their relicensing. As you know, the Europeans are very dubious about genetically modified seeds, and it's been a hard one uh, slog for the Monsanto Corporation, etc., uh, to even get their seeds into um, rotation in Europe. So... Um, it's nice to see that there are some folks uh, in Western Europe who are not completely in the pocket of big business. And that's that's really saying something, given the fact that um, there's going to be an explosive new book on the subject of... Glyphosate and glyphosate poisoning um, by the one and only Carrie Gilliam, who is going to be a guest uh, again in a couple of weeks uh, to talk about her big book, Whitewashed. Um, and uh, you will learn all you ever wanted to know and then some about um, the impacts of glyphosate on human health and otherwise. And lastly for this little segment, um, Barry Estabrook, who has been a guest on my show numerous times and who is one of my very favorite authors and who was kind enough to blurb my book... Um, what's the matter with meat? And by the way, I still haven't administered the quiz that I've promised, but, uh, it's coming. Um, Barry Estherbrook, in case you do not know him, is the author of Tomato Land, which chronicles the, uh, labor, um, struggles of the Immokalee workers, uh, down in Florida who pick tomatoes. Um, he also wrote Pigtails, uh, and just this past week, he um, wrote a wonderful story uh, for Civil Eats, a great publication that comes out daily in your e- email box. And I highly recommend it. And some of the better food journalists in the world are writing for Civil Eats. It's a really terrific publication. Um, but anyway, he covered some groundbreaking news about the dairy industry in Vermont. Um, and a new agreement has been... Uh, forged between Ben and Jerry's, the ice cream uh, company, um, and the dairy farms that sell milk to them. Um, and the, the agreement is modeled sort of after the Coalition for Immokalee Workers Agreement, which um, forces retailers to, um, or rather forces farmers in this case, to A, pay a better wage to their workers, uh It also protects uh, their rights in terms of sick days, uh, medical attention, um, uh, you know, paying taxes, you know, all that kind of stuff, having things like uh, maybe like unemployment insurance. Um, but anyway, it definitely improves the lot of dairy workers who are, let's face it, the backbone of the dairy industry, and they are mostly undocumented workers. And that, for me, is a great reason to eat Ben and Jerry's ice cream on a regular basis. If you didn't need an excuse before, you've got a good one now, because um, they are finally doing the right thing towards their workers. And um, and let's hope other big companies start to do the same kind of thing uh, with the undocumented workers that they work with. And um, without further ado, we're going to take quick sponsor drop we're going to come back with uh, the Food Chain Workers Alliance we're going to be talking about DACA uh, about Dreamers about immigration reform uh, all of which is very germane to this last little bit about dairy workers um, with Jose Oliva and with Jose Lopez uh, who are both um, Jose Oliva is the co-founder of the Food Chain Workers Alliance and Jose Lopez is a Dreamer so stay tuned folks we'll be right back after this message
3: Michael Harlan Turkell, host of The Food Scene and Modernist Breadcrumbs on Heritage Radio Network. I'm here at Bob's Red Mill to find out from Bob himself why his products taste so good. So, what's the secret, Bob?
0: To make the best whole grain flour, we look back in time. No modern technology can match the old world engineering of a stone mill. Wow. Bob's Red Mill is using stone mills? How old are we talking here? Well, the stone mills are practically as old as mankind. And No matter what civilization they uncover, they find two stones that people were rubbing together to make uh, something they could eat, whole wheat flour. But the stones that we use are quarried near Paris, France, in La Ferte. And it's the same stone material from the same quarry that the uh, Romans used to make stone mills all over the Roman Empire, of which you can testify by looking at, at Pompeii. It's a quartz material. It has a uniqueness about it. it's very hard. It has a certain porosity and they put the stones together in a unit of 20 pieces and band it so that they use only the best and, and sharpest parts. It's an ingenious thing but very old, I mean thousands of years old. So it's, uh, it's pretty cool. Those sound like some really special stones. How do they work? Stones turning either the top or the bottom stone, turning at 100 to 125 revolutions per minute, produce a lovely three, four, up to 500 pounds, depends on the, how, how soft the grain is. The bottom stone is the bedstone, and it's also called the nether stone in the Bible, but it also now turns for some configurations. Would you say that using stone mills lead to healthier grains? I know they do. I can watch it. I showed you, (laughs) you know it as well as I do. Uh, The grain goes in the top, goes through the stones and it comes out. We don't lose anything and we don't add anything. Thanks for
3: sharing the story of how Bob's Red Mill is using ancient technology to keep their products on the cutting edge.
0: Michael, we think that we can make a difference by sticking by the traditional way of stone milling, whole grain, and that's what we're doing. You can learn more at
3: bobsredmill.com slash podcast.
2: This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I am your host, Katie Kiefer, and today we're going to be talking about DACA and DREAMers and immigration uh, laws and failure to pass immigration laws uh, in the United States, and why the wherefore, and most importantly, what the impact of those failures is going to be on our food system. So today, have that discussion with me, uh, I am very happy to welcome José Oliva, uh, who is the um, the uh, co-director of the Food Chain Workers Alliance, um, which is a national coalition of food worker organizations that collectively represents over 350,000 workers. José is a 2017 James Beard Award recipient. And my other guest today is uh, his colleague, José López, who came to the United States At uh, the age of five, brought by his mother, along with his older sister, um, leaving behind a very dangerous situation in Mexico, um, he uh, I'm sorry I'm reading this because I just got it this morning um, he works with uh, Jose uh, Oliva uh, and uh, during this t- he has started advocating with the Dream Team in Los Angeles and has participated in numerous actions in Washington D.C. and in Sacramento on behalf of immigrants and today he is still an undocumented uh, person in a mixed family with his older sister now having legal permanent residenthood, uh, residence and his younger sister is a U.S. system uh, citizen. I'm sorry you guys. Um, and there is currently no path for Jose to adjust his status um, because he is a dreamer, I guess. And or no, yes, he was is a dreamer. Um, um, but we we know that dream, that DACA has just been um, rescinded by uh, our <clears throat> our leader. And uh, and so, as he says, no path forward as of yet. So, welcome to the show, you guys. I'm sorry to garble both of your bios like that. I was like switching back and forth between screens. <laughs>
3: No, never my no best thing. No Thank you for having us. This is a fantastic opportunity.
2: Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, it couldn't have happened. I mean, we couldn't have scheduled this for a better day, right? Because um, just today the news is full of information about the deal that Donald Trump wants to enact in order to uh, even consider finding a path forward for the 800,000 plus um, American children who are affected by the DACA. Um uh, Act, I guess it's called. What, what is it? What is DACA? I forgot to write down what it stands for. It's um, tell me, you guys. DACA.
4: Yeah, Should DACA it stands for Deferred Action for Childhood Arrival.
2: Thank you. Deferred Action for Childhood Arrival. Thank you. So, what Donald Trump is proposing, um, in order to keep something like DACA, is to build the wall, uh, to hire ten thousand immigration agents, to enact tougher laws on asylum seekers. Uh, to uh, deny federal money to sanctuary cities, to activate something called the E-Verify Program, which would um, make all employers uh, definitely, uh, you know, investigate the immigration status of anybody applying for a job, Um, to not accept any of the children who are being sent unaccompanied up from Honduras and other countries in in Central America that are uh, just... experiencing civil unrest, and no bringing of extended family. In other words, you can't bring, like, an aunt, an uncle, or a cousin with you, can only have the nuclear family. So those are just a few of the things on the table uh, that um, Donald Trump is seeking um, in in return, I suppose, for allowing Dreamers to stay for, I don't know, how much longer. Um, What do you guys, how do you guys respond to that information?
3: Yeah, uh, first of all, let me just... um tell your listeners a little bit about the Food Chain Workers Alliance, um, and then I'll let Jose Lopez tell you a little bit more about the DACA, uh, sort of the effect of DACA in the food uh, system. Okay. And so the, the Food Chain Workers Alliance, which is an uh, organization we both represent, is a national coalition of uh, food worker organizations. So we represent uh, farm worker organizations, meat, poultry, food processing groups, mm-hmm. uh, folks that, rep- that uh, organize workers in transportation and warehouses, restaurants, and grocery stores so the Uh, entire food chain (laughs) in other words that's right hence the name right food chain workers and so we you can imagine um we see a lot of immigrants uh you know the estimates are that of the 21 and a half million people that work in the food system um that nearly half are immigrants uh, the numbers of undocumented workers of that half is a little bit murkier. Sure. Uh, a lot of folks obviously don't want to report that they're undocumented, even if it's a safe uh, environment uh, where they're being asked. Uh, so we don't have precise numbers on, on the actual amount of folks. Um, but the Food Chain Workers Alliance was created essentially to give voice to workers in the food system, uh, especially in uh, in the food movement, right, in, mm-hmm. in spaces exactly like this one, where we often talk a lot about the uh, impacts and the effects of food on our health or the impacts of food on the environment, or the impacts of food on agriculture, um, but not often, uh, more often now, <laughs> more often now that we've been around for a bit, but uh, when we started there weren't a lot of conversations uh, out there around what food uh, does to labor, what right. food does to the workers, uh, which of course are the largest, um, largest percentage of the U.S. economy, um, bigger right. than healthcare, bigger than anything else. Right? So uh, we should be talking about <laughs> about how food affects our uh, labor and how we affect the labor in, in food system.
2: Well, and what's going um, so to happen to to food prices and food availability and you know like the whole economic piece of that? Because if if all of the undocumented uh, workers are eliminated from the food system, it's not going to be a system anymore. It's going to be a shambles, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's essentially what we're saying here. I, I can't understand why you guys why your organization or why immigration reform has not gotten a bigger uh, boost from the employment sector that relies so heavily on this um, on this you know section of labor. Uh, to make sure that they continue to run their businesses. What, why do you think that's happening? Why do you think that immigration reform or even the support of DACA has not been a higher priority for the big, uh, say, the big growers out in California, for example, who are you know mm-hmm. disproportionately mm-hmm. affected by something like
3: this? Yeah, there's a couple of reasons. Uh, the biggest reason is that we are, unfortunately, in all of the food, Sectors, right? So whether we're talking about farm workers or restaurant workers,
5: mm-hmm.
3: um, we're beholden to folks that speak on our behalf that don't actually represent us. So if you're a restaurant worker, um, oftentimes you will hear about the National Restaurant Association, right? And the National Restaurant Association, sure. in, in essence, represents not just the restaurant owners, but all the restaurant workers, so they attempt to. Um, and the Restaurant Association, the, the NRA, and we call it the other NRA, um, uh, they actually are very anti-immigrant. They, they are 100% behind Trump on building the wall. They are 100% behind Trump on deporting everybody. Um, and they don't actually represent, uh, not only do they not represent the workers, they don't represent the owners, right? If you talk to an average restaurant owner, Um, they will tell you that they actually want immigration reform. They want something that would allow for their workers to remain in the country legally and for them to not get in trouble for hiring folks um, who apply to the jobs that they have, right? And so the vast majority of restaurant owners are not represented by the National Restaurant Association, especially not on immigration, but not on almost any other issue as well. Um, and that's one of the reasons that the Chain Workers Alliance is uh, supporting efforts like ROC's uh, restaurant opportunity mm-hmm. center's efforts to create an alternative restaurant association uh, that they've been calling RAISE, restaurants advocating for industry standards and in employment. Um, and that that association, that restaurant association, does actually represent the interests of restaurant owners, um, especially when it comes to immigration, because they're very pro-immigrant. They're the ones that are behind the... Um, uh, restaurants uh, advocating for um, uh, immigration reform, right. um, and so I'll leave it at that, and I'll let Jose jump in and, and yeah, talk I, a I bit want about Jose DACA to talk a little bit about
2: yeah about DACA and and to talk about you know who are these kids where where are they from what's you know what's the story what is it going to mean for them if if they have to be deported and some of them will start to be deported even as early as the next six or eight weeks isn't that right Jose
4: um, well that's... Uh, I don't want to cause fear, um, so I don't want to say that's right. But um, <laughs> okay. DACA, uh, we said is a action for childhood arrivals, uh, was created in, back in 2012 by the Obama administration. Um, DACA just gives temporary protection for undocumented immigrants. And with that, uh, folks are able to get a work permit um And everything else, right? A social security card, a driver's license. Uh, So for a lot of us, it's the first time that we ever did that. Um, I've been undocumented my whole life. I I received DACA at the age of 23. Wow. So I, I, you know, my adult life, when I started at 18, I had to, you know, struggle to get a job, struggle to get to places. A lot of folks that I'm worried about are the folks who are 18 and came to what what is DACA. They never had to struggle, you know, to get a work permit or to find a job because they never had to as they were able to apply for DACA. Right. And so those are the folks that are going to be more impacted by not being able to renew their work permit. Uh, so. There was an important deadline that just passed on October 5th. For anybody that has DACA and their DACA expired um, on March 5th of next year, uh-huh. they were still able to renew if they sent in their application by October 5th. Uh-huh. That deadline has passed, obviously, but right. um, I was luckily, um, my DACA expired um, in January of next year. So I was able to uh, send in my renewal. I actually just received my letter that they're granting me another two-year work permit. Right. Uh, but for a lot of folks, that's not it. That's not what's happening. Um, a lot of folks, right? You know, if they if their DACA expired even March sixth, right? Uh uh-huh. They will not be able to renew their DACA.
2: And so
5: then <laughs> and they'll be deported. And that's a
4: big problem.
2: Yeah, well, because then with the 10,000 immigrant agents that Donald Trump wants to hire, they, obviously their plan is to search out every single one of you and, and send you back to the country that you've never lived in. Am I right? And,
4: and, and, and originally, back in when we send in our paperwork, right, mm-hmm. during the Obama administration, we weren't scared of giving them that information. I mean, right. it took me about a year and a half after DACA was announced to send in my paperwork because, I mean, these applications, they ask you, where do you live? Where have you lived? Mm-hmm. Where do you have family? Where do you work? So we literally gave this administration all the tools they need to find us. Yeah. So, yes, it's very scary um, because they have everything they need for, for them to deport us, right, mm-hmm. once our DACA expired. But I don't want to cause fear, right? I don't want, you know, people not to live their lives because that's not what it's all about. I mean, we, we all need to continue to organize. We need to, We also need to push this administration that we do. I mean, I don't support right now like a DREAM Act because that's that would only affect the so-called DREAMers, right? All the folks that have DACA. Yeah, And that throws all of our family that are in the States under the bus. For example, a lot of folks are saying, well, these dreamers are not at fault. It's their parents. But to be honest, I don't believe that's true. Our our parents were the original dreamers. They came to the States to better their lives. So so we shouldn't treat them like criminals. I mean, I do not... I, you know, I graduated from high school, college, and and I never wore that cap and gown. I never identify as a dreamer because by doing that, I keep pushing my family. You know, this administration has a quota of people that are going to deport. Now that they can't deport, well, they couldn't deport eight hundred thousand so-called dreamers. Mm-hmm. Who was next? You know,
5: right, my right. parent
4: that jaywalked across the street because. You know, for whatever reason, they jaywalk. They well, don't they're not... have a California ID, right? So they get deported. They get arrested and deported.
2: And when you get arrested and deported, um, you lose everything, right? You lose your if you've bought a house, if you have a car, are your you know you've lost your possessions in addition to being sent to a country that you potentially don't really have any connections in. Is am I right, right in saying oh. that? So the- I
4: came to the age of five to the United States. So yeah. I, you know, I have family in the city of Mexico where I was born, but I have no clue how to, you know, live there. How? Sure. If I get deported today, I wouldn't know how to survive in Mexico. First, I speak English and Spanish, but my Spanish is not as good as it used to be, right? Mm-hmm. And my, I, I, I don't speak the proper Spanish. I don't. I can't spell the proper Spanish. Uh-huh. So that causes um me not to be able to have a good like office job. Sure. Because I wouldn't be able to um do what I what I need to. And so also, you know, now they gave us when DACA was announced, right? We were able to get our social security. Right. And that came with credit cards and bank accounts, things that we never had, you know, I could never right. buy something and and pay it off in 30 days or however long I, you know, get rewards, stuff like that, right? So sure. So now, for me, I, I purchased a brand-new car. This car was, like, a $50,000 car, and, and the problem is, is if I get deported, I, I'm almost done paying off that car, but it's like I will lose that, you know? If I get – if now that they announced that we no longer have DACA, how will I be able to continue to pay that car? And I'm just mm-hmm. one of those folks, right? Folks That's right. have purchased homes, they're, and now they're struggling to see how they're going to continue to pay home. I mean, I, I, I always worked, right? I, I've always made things. Um, I was a tutor back in the day mm-hmm. uh, when I didn't have DACA, but that money came as it goes, as they needed me. Uh, working with the Food Chain Workers Alliance has that given me job stability. Sure. I know that if I work 20 hours or 100 hours, I'm still going to get that paycheck because I'm salaried, right? So I know I could count on the money that comes every two weeks. Yeah. Uh, when I didn't have DACA, right, I had to, you know, sometimes I would make more money than I ever did, but then there were weeks that you know, like in the holidays, that it didn't mm-hmm. work as much because there was the, the need to have tutors around because they didn't have, you know, the the students didn't have school, they didn't have homework, they didn't have questions. Sure. So, and those were the hard times for me, right? Uh, to in order for me to survive, and that's where we're gonna see. Uh, we're gonna see a lot of people um, lose their jobs because DACA is no longer available. Yeah, I, I mean. We, we all knew that this was temp. You know, we, we knew this was going to be temporary. Um, but it's been five years and nothing has happened since. So, mm.
2: um,
4: we, well, we, I, the only thing I could say is we can, we have to continue to organize. And
2: to push. No, okay. So that. Um, so let's bring Jose Oliva back into the conversation. So, what, for example, uh, is Food Chain Workers United? Uh, uh, food is that right? Food Chain Workers Alliance. Um, what, what 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 kinds of public policies are you able to advance um, with state and federal representation? You know, representatives to kind of resolve. And what would you say would be the perfect immigration policy? By the way, let's start with that. What What would be the right thing to do?
3: The 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 number one right thing to do would be to decriminalize all immigrants, right? To ensure that mm. people recognize and that this government, in, in particular, recognizes that the people that came to this country came to this country um, seeking a better life, uh, and and not uh, the, the 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 ongoing narrative right now is that the folks who are here are criminals right and that they uh, are criminals for a number of reasons
5: mm-hmm.
3: uh, but essentially that they are criminals both because they broke the law to get here
5: mm-hmm. um,
3: and because they continue to break the law because they're here uh, and that they're breaking the law in a number of other ways right so they're criminals they're Uh, doing things uh, both violent and nonviolent crime is rising in places where there's more undocumented people. Um, And there's so many, so many uh, ways of disproving that, uh, both from the perspective of, you know, just getting to know the folks who are undocumented. Um, You just heard Jose's story. Sure. Um, And you can also look at the sort of the macro, the numbers, uh, and both at the micro and at the macro level, uh, you will see that the folks who are here uh, are actually here to seek out a better life, right? They're not criminals.
2: And they're not um, taking American it, jobs. And I think that's that's the other side of that narrative of why we don't mm-hmm. want uh, immigrant labor here or immigrants here is because they're taking American jobs. And that's that's the, 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 the uh, dog whistle that Donald Trump blows at every opportunity when talking about um, immigrants, unless he's blowing the dog whistle about Muslims being, you know, terrorists. I mean, you know, it's hard to keep,
3: a, absolutely, keep track, absolutely. but I, I know, think
2: it's important to push back against that jobs narrative as much as it is against the, the criminal narrative, don't you?
3: Oh, absolutely. So, you know, the, the food system, uh, all of the 21 and a half million jobs in the food system are actually the lowest paid sector in the U.S. economy. Yeah. So you put those two things together, right? It's the lowest paid and it's also the largest.
5: Mm -hmm. And what
3: you get is you get essentially the perfect storm for economic uh, shrinking, right? Because the less that people are making, the less that they're able to buy, and therefore the more likely it is uh, that the economy goes down. so workers in the food system, and this goes to what Jose was saying, right, being highly immigrant, uh, highly undocumented, um, are oftentimes in the perfect position to be exploited. Yeah. Um, if we legalize folks who work or are undocumented right now, uh, you essentially remove the fear of being deported uh, and therefore incentivize the possibilities of folks organizing for better working environments, better conditions, better wages, and you create a floor mm-hmm. where one doesn't exist right now, right? So
5: yeah. the,
3: the job narrative that, that you hear from the right of uh, immigrants coming in and, and taking American jobs, um, you know, the the first answer to that is, the jobs that exist are not good jobs for anyone, Right. Uh, and we all have to fight to make them better. <laughs> it yeah. isn't just about immigrants, and it isn't just about the jobs. It's about all of that. It's about our whole economy. Um, that's right. the
5: first Very one. And good then the point.
3: second one, I think, is this idea that the jobs that immigrants take, no one wants to do. Um, and And it's a dangerous narrative for two reasons. One, if you actually increase the wages for those jobs, people will want to do them. Sure. Uh, you know, I, I, I try to remind people how industrial jobs looked 100 years ago, right? Those factory jobs, they were not good jobs. People did not want to do them. They did them because they had to do them. Sure. Uh, people died literally on the shop floor. And it wasn't until people organized and formed unions, strong unions, that raised the floor for everybody. And those were immigrants. Those were immigrants 100 years ago. Oh, for sure. Um, and those jobs are now you know, the $20-an-hour jobs that everyone wants. (laughs) They're good jobs, right? Um, And and that's the same thing with with, uh, our food system, right? Our food system right now is predicated on these low-paying jobs that exploit anyone who works in them uh, but especially immigrants, because they're in a much more vulnerable uh, position than almost anyone else in our in our society. Jose,
2: I've often um, so that, said I've often said that that one of the reasons immigration reform has not passed, despite the efforts of of now at this point quite a few presidents. I mean, George W. Bush was very pro immigration reform, uh, and he got nowhere with it, uh, despite having so many allies in Congress. And my belief is is that for you know many of the companies, like for the big meat packing, I could I know a lot about the meatpacking industry. So I know that they use a lot of undocumented labor there. And I know that one of the reasons they really like to use undocumented labor is to keep those wages way down and to basically do away with any worker protection. And that boosts their bottom line. And so my point here is that it is in the interests of the big players in the uh, mega agribusiness to maintain ambiguity around immigration reform so that they can continue to exploit workers. What do you think of that idea?
3: Oh, absolutely. This is the reason why the National Restaurant Association Uh uh, and all of the other business associations are so staunchly Mm anti-immigrant. They're not actually anti-immigrant. They love the fact that they have a vulnerable population that they can exploit. uh, But they're anti-immigration reform because the moment that those folks become permanent residents and, and, and have a path to citizenship their advantage of holding the fear of deportation over the heads of these folks immediately goes away. That's right. right? And so you immediately have the possibility of those jobs becoming better jobs. Mm -hmm. and You have the possibility of the economy overall growing. Uh, And they don't want that. Right. They want to maintain (laughs) they want to maintain a lockdown on. Uh, their piece of the pie, which is actually a, a much bigger piece of the pie than almost everybody else has. Yeah. Um, and that, you know, it, it, what better way, right, than keeping people divided? And, and, and that plays right into the narrative of, um, of racism, right, where you yes. actually have immigrants, the word immigrant being a, 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 a dog whistle word um, in the right, uh, meaning people from Latin America, right, brown people. Yeah. So immigrants equals brown, and therefore being anti-immigrant doesn't necessarily mean that I, I can be openly anti-immigrant um, <laughs> without calling myself a racist. Right? Right, say, right. oh, no, I'm not a racist, I'm not a racist, I just disagree with uh, immigration, right? I, I don't think we should have open borders is usually the, the, <laughs> the calling card of, right. of these folks on the right wing. Um but really, what they mean is they don't want brown people around, right? right. They don't want their—they don't want a, a, a particular uh, European or Eurocentric way of life to actually be uh, dominated by people who are not of that same uh, Eurocentric perspective. So it's a very interesting narrative, and and I think that it's really important to call it out and to say actually anti-immigration efforts are actually rooted in racism. They're rooted yes. in this idea that somehow brown people are not worthy of the same rights (laughs) as people who are not brown
2: yeah no, that's exactly what it is. So to to talk a little bit more about the political structure, um, the New York Attorney General Eric Schneiderman, who's really a great guy, um, has said that he will actually sue the administration over DACA. Uh, and I wondered if you guys were aware of any other states that were willing to uh, go to that extent in order to preserve um basically the safety of all of these you know dreamers so that they're not finding themselves uh, on the other side of a you know <laughs> of a customs mm-hmm. of a customs gate where they don't want to be um do you think other other attorney generals and other lawmakers will begin to take up this cause or do you think that we are just in the grip of um you know the Republican ideology to to the extent that that will not become a popular movement
3: yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think there's, you know, my uh, personal belief on this is that it it really is uh, a time where we have to resist at every level that we can. Mm
5: -hmm.
3: Um, You know, we have initiated a rapid response network at the Food Chain Workers Alliance um, that consists of three separate layers, right? The first layer being Mm -hmm. just training for folks on the ground. That they know what to do uh, in the case of uh, it, you know immigration, imminent immigration raids or other mm-hmm. attacks in the community, um, and then you know the top layer of that plan includes this sort of broad organizing framework um, centered around May Day, May first uh, uh, actions. Yep. um That is that are intended to actually create a pivot towards uh, a, a more. Um, a stance that is not defensive, but more offensive. Um, and so I, you know, and that's our narrow, that's sort of our perspective because we're an organizing group, right? We we mm-hmm. represent workers and worker organizations. Um, and then there are legal organizations who are using the law uh, to resist and using the law to create the kind of momentum that, that we need to become more uh, of an offensive movement. And, um, and and that, and i applaud that right it's not necessarily what we're doing but it is definitely worth doing oh yeah um and and so i think what the new york um uh, uh, attorney general is doing is great and i think that there's a uh, there's definitely a need for more states to follow in that in their footsteps um i don't think i <laughs> I know for a fact that here in Illinois, where I'm based, I'm based in Chicago. Yeah, um, we're definitely not in any uh, in any remote way going to do that just because of our governor um, mm. uh, is a very very staunch Republican, sort of in the same makings of Trump.
5: Mm.
3: Um, I don't think California. I, I know California has a much different political environment, so uh, they might be in a in a similar position to New York, but I'm not fluent on what they're doing.
2: Well, in terms of like. Go ahead, Jose Jose Lopez. Did you want to add something?
4: Uh, yeah, I could say I could talk a little bit about California. I mean, yeah. um, I'm based here in Los Angeles, California. Um, we have pushed Governor Brown uh, to make um, California a sanctuary city, correct? Um, so I applaud um, the, att- the New York Attorney General, Eric, um, as hopefully he's leading the way for other um, states to follow his lead. And uh, as my co-director said, we need to push in every level we can. So I think that's great. Yeah. I'm,
2: I'm, I mean, I would think that it would be really literally disastrous for the California economy um, to uh, fail to protect their immigrant workforce, documented or undocumented. I mean, you know, there's so many undocumented and migratory workers who are absolutely integral to the success of California food production, that the idea that they would not go way out of their way to protect that um, is kind of incomprehensible to me. And I remember reading like right after Trump was elected, suddenly a lot of the guys down in the San Joaquin Valley in Southern California were like, oh my God, you know, when he's talking about the wall and talking... (laughs) Out shipping out all of the undocumented, you know, workers here. W- w- wait a minute, wait a minute, you know, like, what, time out. I mean, we got to get our harvest in, you know. <laughs> that's
3: like, right, that's right.
2: Um, and I think, and a lot of the states in uh, in the South and in the Corn Belt who also rely on, on you know, migratory labor or undocumented labor for food crops um, are in the same position. So it seems to me that... You know, a food chain workers' alliance type organization. Um, you know, I would imagine that you have, uh, you know, branches or organizations that you work with in each one of those big heavy ag states, that might be, um, you know, very helpful in terms of organizing uh, local state opposition to, uh, you know, Trump's idea of mass deportations and so on. Do you see that happening, or is that still sort of at the, at the, um, you know, at the at the bare organizing levels?
3: Yeah, it's a little bit of both. So we've all heard the stories of what happened in Georgia after they um, implemented uh, the the law that essentially criminalized uh, an extreme law that that was passed back in in 2015, right? And and the Mm -hmm. idea of the law was that if you rented an apartment to an undocumented family, that you were criminally liable for aiding and abetting. Uh, an immigrant family, right? Oh, my God. And, and if you sold a car... I'm sorry?
2: And, you, and if you sold a car to one, all to an undocumented
3: car, worker? If you did any any kind of legal transaction with an undocumented person, that you were then held accountable. So the, the result of that law was a bottoming out of their labor pool, right? So all the yeah. folks who would come through the state... Um, during the, the season to pick peaches and to do all of the agricultural labor yeah. um, stopped coming. And a lot of the folks moved out. <laughs> and so you ended mm-hmm. up with this bottoming out of the, uh, of the agricultural economy in the year 2016, where literally entire fields uh, went to waste. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that, that is essentially the lesson or that's the future, if you will, yes. for the agricultural system of the United States if we go down that path. Um, now, the reality is that if the um, if we don't have resistance, right, and if we don't create the kind of movement that we need uh, in order to provide that resistance, that uh, that is what's going to happen because the momentum for the right is— uh, the, the wind is behind their sails. Yes. Um, and if we are not standing in the way, that is exactly what's going to happen at the national level. Yeah. Um, and so we are, you know, I, I talked earlier about our rapid response uh, uh, system that we, we helped set up, um, which consists of three elements, right? The first of which is just the basic training on the ground, um, the second one is more uh, along the lines of creating physical responses on the spot for any attacks that are being uh, perpetrated against immigrant communities. Um, And then the third one is organizing around the National Day of Action, which we are calling for on May 1st of 2018. Uh Um, And what we want to do is we want to have a national uh, strike, uh, a a, a general strike on May Day, uh, both as a way of demonstrating what it would actually be like to not have immigrants in any workplace working, uh-huh. um, and also as a way of demonstrating the impact, uh, the economic impact uh, that that immigrant families have in this country. So, the, um, so they would so, not you know, purchase
2: anything either. So, in addition to not working, they would also not be buying right.
3: anything. Boy, exactly. money talks, you don't Jose. Go to work. You don't- Right. You don't go to school. You don't buy anything on, on right. May first of twenty eighteen.
2: So how can we help you publicize that event? I mean, and and how much um, how much support amongst your? I mean, you represent about three hundred and fifty thousand people, but there's obviously, as we've discussed, there's twenty one million. Um, yeah. Right. I mean, how are we going to make twenty one million people do that? Because I think that they would, and I certainly think they should. Um, what, what can I do, Jose? <laughs>
3: <laughs> you know, well, like, you're doing it already. You have us on the show, and, yeah, and, and, that's and we'll do
2: it again before um, we'll have you on again before that happens, so that we can, you know, push that great. idea that's again. Great. But I, I just feel like, you know, I I can't. I'm again. I'm I'm sort of gobsmacked by the idea that all of these, um, you know, mega agri corporations that use uh, so much undocumented labor um, have not really. You know, I understand why they wouldn't, but in the face of potentially losing uh, so many workers, it seems kind of crazy to me that they're not putting more pressure on Congress at this point to do something at least realistic, if not ideal. Um, That's So, right. in the last few minutes of the program, let's 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 just um, go back to the idea of what you see as the solution to immigration. Uh, issues in this country, whether it's from the point of view of kids who were born here and, you know, didn't, and two undocumented families, uh, or who came here on, you know, because they had to, um, and the people who have been here working for, for so many years as as both of you did. I know, Jose Oliva, I know that you mm-hmm. were undocumented for many years as well. Um, so mm-hmm. what, what would be the path to citizenship that you think would be most fair, um, and 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 What kind of numbers, I guess, would you talk about?
3: I think everyone who is here currently working Mm -hmm. um, in the United States or going to school or just being part of the community, contributing, Mm -hmm. um, should have an opportunity to become a U.S. citizen if they want to. Right. Um, Now, I I know that that's not necessarily politically feasible at the moment, uh, but, you know, once upon a time we thought that women voting was politically unfeasible, right? And so Excellent uh, I, point. Don't want us to, <laughs> I don't want us to think that this is just because it isn't politically feasible with this particular Congress um, that it's going to be politically unfeasible for the rest of our history. Um, right. Now, that being said, I know that in order for that to happen, we need to actually change the minds and the hearts of millions of people who have, into that narrative that somehow immigrants are taking away jobs or that they're dipping into somehow, I don't know how they would be doing this, but that they're dipping into government coffers for public assistance. Right. (laughs) Um, Yeah, that's another big part of the
2: narrative. Yeah.
3: That's right. That's right. And so we need to change those minds and those hearts. Right. We need to reach those folks and help them understand exactly what the contributions are of immigrants in this country, and of what the benefits could be, not just to the country as a whole, with legalizing all uh, of the currently over 10 million undocumented workers, Mm -hmm. um, but the benefits to them, right? The personal benefits that they would have uh, as a result of actually having a much larger block of people who would be entering the labor force legally legally. And who would be paying taxes, and who would be engaging in essentially bringing the floor up <laughs> in all of these industries that currently have no floor, right? So that yeah. they would actually have a direct economic benefit as a result of those folks being part of the um, part of the legal infrastructure of this country.
2: Yes, I I, I agree. That sounds <clears throat> that sounds completely reasonable to me. I can't imagine why anybody. <laughs> <laughs> You know, we just have to break capitalism. (laughs) Right? I mean, essentially, we just have to have a revolution. (laughs) But I I think you bring forward a very, very important part of this whole program, and that is public education. Because I do think that there are, you know, enormous swaths of this population in this country where uh, their exposure to people of other nations, of other religions, of other colors, is kind of minimal. And there's mm-hmm, a lot mm-hmm. of fear around them. I'm you know, i certainly not speaking originally here by any means, but I do think that the fear factor between the, the idea that they're taking away benefits, that they're taking away jobs, uh, that they're somehow going to impose Sharia law. Remember, that was like a big thing for yeah. a few months. <laughs> you know, yeah. everybody was worried yeah, that yeah, suddenly yeah. we'd be cutting people's hands off willy-nilly. You know, I mean, it was like wait a minute, you know, like, let's not go crazy here. So I, you know, I I do think the public education part of it is probably the most important part. And I I certainly uh, am delighted to be able to help you spread your mission uh, and your word. We should probably more or less wrap it up. So I want to give you an opportunity now to talk about more how people can get involved in the Food Chain Workers Alliance, learn more about uh, the plight of food chain workers from field to fork. Uh, the system is absolutely stacked against them. Immigration is just one part of that puzzle. Um, you know, tell us about mm-hmm. where they can learn more about all of these issues uh, and hopefully become good spokesmen for um, food chain workers across the nation.
3: Right. Yeah, well, first of all, thank you for having us. My pleasure. Uh, you know, it's always a pleasure to be on this on this show um, there's a couple of places that you should visit and a couple of things that you can do to uh, help improve working conditions and wages for workers in the food system. Um, the first is you should educate yourself, but we just published a report uh, called No Piece of the Pie, mm-hmm. uh, which you can either just Google or you can go to our website, foodchainworkers.org, um, and you can pick up that report there. Um, and that gives you a little bit of a breakdown of what we've been talking about today, just in the context of the numbers and how many people work in what industries and mm-hmm. how much they're paid and all that good stuff. Um, and so that would give you, I think, the kind of deeper understanding to then become engaged in some of the work that we're doing Um One of the major pieces of programming that we're engaged around is a a campaign called the Good Food Purchasing Policy. Mm -hmm. Uh, The Good Food Purchasing Policy is a procurement policy usually at the municipal or at the school district level. Um, We pioneered this policy back in 2012 in Los Angeles. Um, And the beauty of the policy is that it's comprehensive. It's the only comprehensive procurement policy in the United States. Um, It has five value categories human health, environmental sustainability, animal welfare, local economies, and labor, of course. Right. Um, and essentially, it functions as a filter, right? So that the food that the school district or that, that city buys uh, can't just be the cheapest stuff that they can find, but now they have to meet certain criteria for each one of those five value categories. Um, right. And they don't get to pick and choose which one they like the most. They have to meet baseline criterion at all five of the value categories um, and so we are hopeful that with uh, the passage we just passed in, uh, in Chicago Chicago public schools uh, and Chicago Park District became um, the first institutions outside of California to adopt the good food purchasing policy so now we have the city of Los Angeles the city of uh, Oakland city of San Francisco and several institutions here in Chicago that have uh, adopted the gift purchasing policy. We have campaigns going on in a bunch of cities, New York, the twin cities, Cincinnati, Denver, Austin, Texas, a bunch of other places, Washington, DC. Uh-huh. So if you're in any of those places, you can get involved in your local uh, campaign. Um, we want to hear from you and we want you to get on our, on our mailing list. Also, that's another way that you can be engaged. Um, you can do that by simply getting on uh, our website, uh, org and, uh, Looking for how to sign up there. Um, and you guys and have yeah, a newsletter. Thank you so much for, for
2: having us it's Jose, it's we been a do. pleasure. We have a quarterly newsletter. Yeah. Uh, Jose and Jose. Mr. Oliva and Mr. Lopez, thank you both very, very much for joining me today because, I mean, this is such a hot-button topic right now, um, and we'll be – you know, I'm definitely going to be calling you to come back uh, in a few months and talk more about what's going on because I'm sure this whole system is going to – you know, this whole, this whole thing is going to keep escalating until – I don't know what happens. Mm-hmm. Nothing good, unfortunately, but <laughs> we will hope for the best. And thank you for all the great work you do on behalf of food chain workers across the nation. Cause it's really, you know, the, these are the people who feed us. I mean, there's nothing more important than protecting that food chain and our food security. And that this is one of the main ways of, of supporting that is through supporting organizations like food chain workers Alliance. So thanks a lot, you guys for the work that you do. And thanks for joining me today on the show. And thank you so much to my wonderful sponsor, Bob's red mill. We couldn't do it without him. Um, so Please buy their products. Uh, they are great, and um, and they are sustainably and appropriately produced. And the company is owned by their workers. It's it's an incredible model. Down with capitalism, great. folks! <laughs> <laughs> See you next week. <laughs> Thanks thank for you. listening. Yeah, thank you. <laughs>